Blog Talk Radio. This episode is sponsored by the new book, Dads of Disability, a book that will foster discussions among fathers, mothers, and caregivers. You haven't seen a volume like this one. Samples and special offer at www.dadsofdisability.com slash coffee. Good evening and welcome to the Blog Talk Radio, a show of Bright Not Broken on the Coffee Clatch Network. We are excited to be here today to continue our series on the whole child. We have got uh, a very special guest for you today. She's been with us once before. And we are excited to welcome her back as part of our series on the whole child, and that is uh, Michelle Garcia Winner, a very special um, speech language pathologist, communication specialist, who has just been just a force in in our field, and she is. Um, got a lot to offer us today. I'll give you just a quick background in case you're not familiar with who Michelle is. Um, She specializes in the treatment of students with social cognition deficits. She is the founder of the Social Thinking Center and Think Social Publishing in San Jose, California. She also oversees the operations of Social Thinking Boston, which is an affiliate company providing social thinking services and programs in the Boston, Massachusetts area. She's published more than 20 books on social thinking and is an internationally recognized expert. Michelle travels around the world speaking on a multitude of topics related to social thinking, and uh, we are so excited to have her here here today. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. We are going to get started today in uh, in our next series on the whole child by talking about social thinking, what it means, and so uh, and basically how it affects our children who we believe are bright, not broken. So um, before we um, really get into some some deep topics here today, Michelle, can you just give uh, our listeners a brief overview of what social thinking is and describe how some of these characteristics of high-ability children with um, have challenges in social thinking? Okay, I'd be happy to. I'm going to start actually with why I even created social thinking. And uh, social thinking, I started in the field as a speech pathologist in the late 70s working with people with autism. And at that time, they were um, only, they were minimally verbal, nonverbal, and had um, significant intellectual impairments. And we taught them very rule-based social skills. And we were happy if they did anything close to what we were trying to get them to understand they needed to do. And we reinf- we told them what the skill was they needed to do. We modeled it. We reinforced approximations of it. And we were working on really basic communication strategies. And so I worked with them for many years. I ended up going into hospitals and as a speech pathologist after that, and working in what they call um, rehab units for folks with head injury and stroke and learning a lot about the higher functioning of the brain and what happens when you lose skills based on in you're a very intelligent person, but you have a stroke or head injury. And then in the 1990s, I ended up working in a high school district because simply my kids were school-aged and I wanted to be on their schedule. And there I had a lot of uh, referrals as a speech pathologist for kids who had social problems in the classroom. And so I brought in my skills-based um, social teaching where I told them what, we need, what they needed to work on and started putting them on 
uh, shaping plans and reinforcing approximation of their social skills. But the difference was I found this group was highly argumentative at times and would challenge me and say, I don't care about this. Why should I have to do this? Um, I don't want to think about anybody else. And that's what really took me into what I created with social thinking because I, their questions and their concerns made me really have to think about why do we even do, what, what are social skills about? Where do they come from? How do we do them? How do we even know to do them? And when I started exploring that personally and then doing a lot of reading about it from all different fields, including anthropology, cultural linguistics, uh, ADHD, autism, uh, kind of what my summary of that was is that we don't literally memorize social skills and walk into a room and just perform the social skill we were asked to do. In fact, nobody asked us to do a skill. The, what we decide to do socially is based on what I call our social thinking, our ability to look at the situation, understand the people in the situation, consider their perspectives, understand their point of view, what they want from us, what we want them to think about us or how we want them to consider us. That recalls that needs us to develop our own self-awareness. And then we perform social behaviors, which people call social skills, um, or, or we adapt our behavior to kind of meet the needs or to satisfy the situation the way we want it to, to kind of play out. So social thinking is a process that really is is a mind-based process about how do I understand you, how, I, how do I understand the situation, and what is it that I'm supposed to do socially in order to make help you to have the thoughts about me that I want you to have or for you to understand my point of view in a way that you're still willing to consider my point of view. And so that's, that's what social thinking is about, is it's not just social skills-based, here's a skill, do it, but what's the critical social thinking we have to do in order to understand that skill? Michelle, may I ask you a quick question? This is Rebecca. Um, how do you foster the the why aspect? You mentioned the students who say, why do I have to do this? And um, how do you get them to care? Because in my teaching experience, I've run into um, numerous children who, even though we try to, to, to coach them in the essence of, well, you have a goal and you need to interact with people to achieve this goal, uh, fostering that perspective, um, that self-awareness as well as the group awareness. Um, so I'll, I'm going to answer the question in two parts. And, and the first part I think we're going to come back to and talk about later, and that is um, I look at the social mind as being a spectrum of different levels of functioning. So not the way I'm going to answer this question is not going to apply to everybody. It's only going to apply to those who have or are developing some level of self-awareness. We absolutely have some um, traditionally academically bright people who have very, very poor self-awareness. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're not typically, the ones with poor self-awareness are not typically the ones who are challenging us. The ones with poor self-awareness just kind of do what we ask them to do. They just have a hard time doing it well. So the ones who challenge us are usually the ones who have emerging or good self-awareness. And then, so I, I specialize in working with teens and young adults. So I have constantly dealt with this issue of folks saying, I don't care, why should I have to? And what I've learned about this are, are a few things. One is when we put a kid in a social skills 
group or into social skills treatment, there's an unwritten message there. There's a hidden message. We don't really tell the kid or the person, including adults. And the, the hidden message is we need you to be in this group because you're actually annoying us, irritating us, or offending us. And so you need to do what we want you to do so you can stop doing that to us. And that's it's that's what it means to have a social skills problem. A social skills problem means you're making other people have uncomfortable thoughts about you. And so when we put kids and adults who are developing self-awareness into groups and they realize that they're irritating people and they have a strong sense of self, they're going to challenge you and say, well, I don't care. I'm doing what's right for me. And so what I've learned to do is not to focus. When I get a person who starts to be resistant, I don't focus on here's what you need to do with us. What I start with is focusing on what do they expect from others. So rather than ultimately we want to get there where we get the person to realize how they need to adapt effectively for others, but they're not going to get there if they don't study their own expectations for how, how they want everyone to treat them. So we do this just big paradigm shift, and we start with the more argumentative or questioning kids with uh, what makes you feel good about others, what makes you feel uncomfortable from others, and we really focus on their knowledge, and we focus on getting them to celebrate, wow, I do have some good abilities to understand this. I understand what I want, how I want people to treat me. I understand what makes me feel comfortable. I understand what makes me feel irritated. I understand that you talking to me like that makes me feel stupid. And so we focus on that. And then slowly, 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 and this can be very slowly depending on the kid, we then do, we, I, I've worked with students who really are interested in psychology, so then I'm like, okay, then let's study social psychology and you're going to be the psychologist with me. And then over time, how do we, if, if you have all these expectations for me, if I, I'm sorry, if I have all these expectations for you, if I want you to do it for me like this, then would it be fair to say that other people probably have the same expectations? And then we slowly walk them from their own expectations to understanding the other person's point of view and how they are coming across to other people. My clients, I work with a lot of adults. I work with adults in the business world. And everyone I work with has good intentions, they just mm-hmm. don't understand that the way they're coming across is seen as far less than good intentions. If you know, if I'm my client and I tell you everything I know about this topic so that you can get better at it, if you didn't ask me to tell you that information, you now think I'm arrogant and condescending because mm-hmm. I'm telling you something that you didn't ask for and so you think I'm just trying to show off my knowledge to you. And some of the flip side is um, I also have students who are strongly empathetic in that they keenly sense other people's feelings, but they aren't aware of people's motives, if that makes any sense. And so that while they're aware that people, you know, and they worry about hurting people's feelings and and um, how these people are feeling, they don't it's almost like they're making themselves the perfect victim because they're unaware that these people who have these feelings also can have motives. And so that these these kids who don't have a full awareness of, of motives also tend to get crushed in the social network, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's a whole different, that's a completely different problem. 
Sure, sure. It's all part of it because however we interpret and respond to each other affects our social behavior. So if you're if I can't read your motives, then I can't adapt my behavior based on how I think you're thinking. Right? So right. you know, if recently I had a really grumpy sixteen year old start working with me and she's no longer grumpy working with me, but the first day she was really grumpy and and she um and I was letting her know um, in kind of, you know, humorous ways that her behavior could be interpreted as really offensive because she was like, well, I'm answering all your questions, so I don't really see how my behavior can be offensive. But her body's pulled away. She's looking all, you know, mad and stuff. And so um, working with her on this, I finally just said to her, can you define social for me? Like, you're here because your mom wants you to work on social. You've been with other counselors. What is social? And the girl looked at me, she goes, well, it means that you're gregarious. And this was a very bright, like super gifted girl. She goes, it means you're gregarious. And I said, oh, it doesn't. And she's like, what does it mean? And I said, all social means is that you're adapting effectively. That's all it means. So if people are like in a really gregarious context, then adapting effectively, you would also try to match the emotion and be gregarious. But, you know, if people are in a, in a context where people are frustrated, a little bit angry, and you came off as gregarious, that would be really bizarre. Adapting effectively would be, would be that uh, more, you know, negative, showing that you're frustrated or, or relating to that. So there, this is a, it's such a big topic because what, what you just brought up in your example is a kid who, he has he has an emotional sense. He understands other people have emotions, and he wants other people to feel good. Correct. Right. Right. He wants people to because almost everybody. I I've, unless I'm working with somebody who's got serious, serious, serious mental health problems, n- nobody says I want people to feel bad about me, and I want to make people feel bad. Unless that person's just hurting a lot themselves from their own post-traumatic stress or different mental health issues they have, virtually everybody, if they could really pick their relationships with people, most people would pick, I want people comfortable about me, I want to make people feel comfortable, and all of that. So we, what you're describing is a person who's on board with emotional understanding to some extent, maybe not super sophisticated, but they can't understand the other person's plan. They can't understand the other person's motive. And so they get sucked into doing things that may be harmful to them, like they may get tricked, they may be taken advantage of, they may get money stolen. And so then how do we teach that person the other person's plan? You will also see that same person, that exact same person, doesn't understand how they're being read as well. So right. so they don't they don't understand how the other person is interpreting them. And I would say that somebody who really doesn't understand someone else's motive is probably a pretty literal thinker and probably has somewhat limited self awareness. Does that line up in the kid you're thinking about? Yes. Yes it does. Okay. Because those are all that these are cascades that all happen together. And so um to understand someone else's motive, we got to back up. So part of in social thinking, our treatment is to not start there and say, okay, we just need to get you to figure out what other people's motives are. Because when you crack that nut open and you start digging into the the meat of the issue, you're going to find your person, you need to move them back in treatment that perhaps you're making too many expectations for them based on other abilities. Um, so often 
we set our expectations too high for some of our kids in terms of what they can figure out quickly or with us in social groups based on their language skills and their academic IQ. Mm -hmm. There's there's only a 5% overlap um, between social intelligence and academic intelligence. So wow. I can work with a really gifted person who's academically gifted. That's what we mean by gifted is they're academically gifted. But when I now need to pull into their social intelligence where we're really working on how do we read back and forth in an incredibly fast way, your perspective, my perspective, how do we emotionally match, that that academic intelligence is not going to be highly useful in the social arena. And so you can be academically super bright and you can be emotionally, socially emotionally quite limited. In fact, if we had a measurement of the, their social IQ, we would probably find that it was perhaps below average. Um, in fact, some folks I work with who are incredibly academically bright, we might, if we had a measurement, we would say this person's cognitively impaired when it comes to social intelligence. So that's part of the treatment snafus is the expectations we use in the classroom for how kids can perform academically are not the same expectations we can use for understanding the social arena and the teaching we need to do for that. Well, it just gets me thinking, um, and I know I'm kind of skipping ahead here, um, Diane and Michelle, but the relationship between social thinking and the common core standards that have um, just swept this nation. Um, yeah. How, how can the weaknesses, how do these relate, and how can weaknesses impact a child's success with common core? Yeah, I think I think it's a really interesting topic. So back in the 90s when I started social thinking in the high school district, one of the first things I noticed in addition to social, because I just honestly never thought about it before, um, was that my kids who were more literal, um, and literal language has a lot to do with this, my kids who were very literal um, were having trouble with reading comprehension of social literature. They were not having trouble with reading comprehension of factual um, mm -hmm. information, but they were having trouble with social literature. And they were also having written expression problems. And that tied back to they also had difficulty with telling a story with language, that they had what we call poor narrative language. They didn't tell their story well, but they would tell it in bits and pieces. They would tell us the facts, and we would have to try to weave together what they meant by what they were saying to us. And so early, the first thing I released to the public as I was evolving and continue to evolve social thinking is something called the ILAF model, that social mm -hmm. cognition depends on us initiating and listening actively with our eyes and our brain and abstracting, interpreting, which also includes perspective taking and getting the main idea. And those dovetail right into what we call academic learning. So prior to the Common Core, I've been writing and speaking on how social learning affected state standards. So for me, the Common Core is this tremendous blessing in a way because I travel <laughs> all over the country, and now I get to talk about one set of standards for you know 95% of the country. They're not everybody's accepted the Common Core. Some are still using state standards. And so what I found and have been seeing for years, and certainly the research supports this, but the research is only recently becoming more robust in this in the fields of autism and related disabilities, and that is that if you're, if you're born to really um, 
so I want to go back and remind the audience, I have this whole scale of different levels of the social mind, and it's actually for free. I haven't told you guys this yet. On my website, which is socialthinking.com, we have a tab called What's Social Thinking? And we have a ton of free information. But the scale I'm not really going to describe right now in big in at length, it's it, it's it's a big scale. It's called the Social Thinking Social Communication Profile, and it's a free 32-page article on what I call different levels of the social mind. And the levels, I, we have this group called the Emerging Social Communicator, and these are kids who are often um, brought into the mainstream classroom. We celebrate their abilities related to science learning, math learning, computer learning, more factually based learning. And then people are dumbstruck by the fact that when they get over to English language arts or having to participate in a <laughs> science lab or having to do a math estimation question where you have to bring in a fusion of inferencing and main idea that these guys are their abilities are in contrast they're 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 showing a disability that's in strong contrast to their many abilities and people don't know how to make sense of it because if you give them a test of reading they can fluently read really well and so we just think that they should be good at reading comprehension of literature so let me delve in right there on reading comprehension of literature versus facts and what reading comp what what reading tests are all about because one of the great challenges is I can work with a kid who has serious learning disabilities in the classroom related to writing and reading comprehension, but if I look at that kid's test scores, they can still look fine. And it's like, well, how can you have a serious learning disability and get good test scores? So I'm going to jump into that a little bit. On reading testing, one of the primary indicators we use of reading comprehension is what we call reading fluency. If a kid can pull the word off the page and read multisyllabic words fluently and just glide along the page reading, reading well in terms of picking the words up and getting them into his brain, it is assumed that kids can now comprehend. And we know and the research is there to support that our kids can read to the level of fact. If it's really concrete information, they're going to make sense of it. But now jump over to the inferential information, like how did this character feel and why did this character do this and what was the character's plan and what, you know, what did people think was going to happen next in the story. Those are all inferences and predictions. And those inferences and predictions are not learned through reading and practicing reading. Those inferences and predictions are learned from normal, from social development in babyhood, toddlerhood, preschool, where children in their earliest social development start thinking about other people's minds, they track other people's vision, they look at what people are looking at, they start to make guesses about what people are thinking about. And when babies start talking, they don't just say, I want cookie, I want this, from the very first beginning of language for typically developing kids, they may point to something and say, look, like look at the airplane, because their brain is already at a place that they understand that you don't know what they're looking at, so they speak to share their knowledge. A lot of our little concrete learners, even they're not even little, big, you know, kids who mm -hmm. can be scientifically really smart, they may have only talked about facts and they may have only told you what they wanted and they might 
not in early development have really reached out to try to get you, you the parent, you another kid in preschool to connect to what they were thinking about because they weren't thinking about what you were thinking about. They were learning all about science and facts. So the social brain really develops very strongly in early development. And then by preschool, children are supposed to be able to work in groups, share an imagination, and even collaborate and problem solve to be able to do, you know, shared imaginative play um, together. And those are these are not things teachers teach. These are things that the brain is just supposed to evolve. And we actually have never really studied how to teach them to these brighter kids. It's not been studied in a big in a big big way. Um, people are just really developing. Like, wow, you can be a really bright little preschool kid and have no idea how to play. We're used to nonverbal kids not knowing how to play. But what about these bright kids who go off by themselves and they build Lego towers? And they're really happy building Lego towers. And when anyone comes over to touch their tower, they have a tantrum because nobody should interfere with what they're doing. That kid's not learning right. how to think about others. That right. same kid is probably going to have more difficulty as he gets older getting into these bigger inferences about the social mind because he's just never practiced them. So that's that's one way in which we jump into going, okay, the common core standards are not something teachers simply teach. There's a lot of common core standards. There's a thing called anchor standards in the common core, and these are standards yes. which go across every grade level. So, for example, point of view is an anchor standard in English language arts. Every single grade level works somehow on point of view. But the assumption is that teachers teach point of view, and teachers aren't teaching it the social brain was supposed to actually figure it out on its own. And what teachers mm -hmm. do is they culminate the practice of it in a classroom, but the kid was supposed to bring it with them before the mm -hmm. teacher could ever work with it. So if I've got a bright, uh, academically bright kid who's never really practiced or understood point of view, he's going to really have trouble accessing those standards. And then the teachers are going to go, wow, he's got a behavior problem because whenever we try to work on this, he starts getting, you know, uh, refusing in class, he starts being distracting, he's a behavior problem, refer him to a behaviorist, he needs to behave while we're doing reading um, or, or having these discussions. Or he's the one who hangs on to the instruction that this point of view uses this pronoun and they can identify a point of view based upon the factual knowledge, but they can't understand how point of view might inform motive or character development or choices or the whys that characters. Yeah, exactly. And it's that same kid that you're going to have see on the playground who doesn't know how to read the motive of the other person in, right. in real time. And in real time is even harder because in real time you only have milliseconds to figure out what people are doing and to respond. At least when you're in a classroom reading something, you can read it and reread it and process it a little bit slower. Um, but still, there's a real connection. If I work with a kid who is really socially awkward and does not know how to speak to others or include them in a group, or I've worked with really gifted kids who do not know how to walk in a group with others because they just don't do group think. They just do what we call me think rather than we think. And that this is all related. It is not surprising at all that this kid has trouble with his um, 
core critical, you know, critical thinking in academics is heavily reliant on a social mind um, when you're getting to social critical thinking. Like, why did this person do this in history? Or when you're reading your social studies books, filling in the gray area about these why questions is so tricky. But if you take these kids and developmentally go backwards and really look at how they play and related, you will find that the majority of these kids social relationships are anchored on adult-based relationships and that they've never really been able to move to peer-based social relationships um, with other typical kids who are demanding of really fast, efficient social processing and responding to each other. Right. And then these are the, the, the kids that we see who can catch the plot line in a, in a literary piece. But far be in much other than identifying the setting and what happens in a story, they can't explain any of the whys. And and I just had never considered that that goes all the way back to preschool and that it's it's assumed that kids are coming, their brains are already loaded with these abilities. It's not just inferential thinking. This goes to social thinking, and that goes yeah, all the which way. is. Which goes back to, I mean, it, when you're saying that they're understanding the plot lines and they can tell you what's happening in the story, what age child are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about um, even third graders can, you know, tell you, well, this happened, then this happened, then that happened in the story, just in terms of reading comprehension. But when you ask, well, why this happened or why, why did the character do this? And I, all the way, I teach high school and I see this, but I've also yeah. worked with grades, lower grades as well. And so this has just, you know, given me a whole new grasp of what inferential thinking truly means, what we're asking right. kids to do. And, and it goes back to social you thinking. Will. You will also see kids who also can be gifted or normal IQ who they can tell you the event sequence in the story, but they they actually mm-hmm. could not tell you the plot necessarily because a plot is a main idea. And mm-hmm. if the main idea is is tagged around an emotional relationship, like the point mm-hmm. of the, the article or the point of the short story or had to do with how people were thinking and feeling with about each other, they would not be able to tell you the plot um, related to, like if it's a social-emotional plot. If it is a factual plot, like, Mm -hmm. you know, a a lot of our guys like sci-fi because so much of it is action sequences and it's good versus evil and it's very black and white kind of um, understanding of the plot. Right. Then we're in better shape. Harry Potter and the fantasy uh, series like um, Percy Walker and all of those are are very, very popular with a a lot of your higher ability students that I would have never pegged might have social challenges. And it it just makes a lot of sense because those are not heavily emotional plot lines, even the Hunger Games. Um, The Hunger Games took off because it's a very action-packed, Series. I mean, and then when you get into the end of the trilogy where it becomes more emotionally laden, I noticed that some of my students lost interest or couldn't follow the story anymore and thought it was stupid because who really cares what these characters felt about each other? So, right. um, Which, yeah. And, and in terms of like outcome and, and growth uh, in the long run, I work with you know a number of folks 
who are, you know, doing very well in careers, except um, they're, they're, you know, I work with a number of adults who they look absolutely normal. In fact, they carry themselves well. They've got great hygiene. They're very attractive. Uh, depending on the person, they're, they've got some success in their career, but they have a life with um, some of them have really not been able to form any kind of uh, deeper social relationships, uh, social sexual relationships, which everybody ultimately wants. And then depending on their jobs, I have a number of folks who can do really well in the technical part of their job, but they really struggle in a meeting to actually connect with others. And so there's limitations. They, they're kind of a glass ceiling on their promotions over time because they've They've shown so much um, advanced work in their careers, so that means they should be moving up the chain into management and all. But once they get up to the chain now, every time we promote you, that turns into stronger social and organizational skills. And our folks who can have really great scientific knowledge tend to have weaker social, not all of them, but the ones that we're talking about here, weaker social. And it's not a coincidence that social and organizational problems often bundle together. So I have worked with some folks who have social issues and are highly organized but more commonly, I work with folks who have social issues and also have a lot of executive functioning, organizational issues. That, that kind of, on a different day's talk, we can talk about social executive functioning. But these all bundle together. So that's a lot of the work I've done um, and written about. And I have a ton of free articles on my website about the social academic connection. I have something I have called something. the social learning tree, and I just have a lot of free information people have um, that they can access if the listeners are just learning about this. I think it's really important for the ADHD community to understand mm -hmm. that there is high-level social teaching out there because I think a lot of folks who have kids with ADHD who are more your typical-looking kids get frustrated when they're put in a social skills group, they might be put in somebody in a group with somebody who's much more awkward and odd and more literal than them, and the lessons aren't the same. And so how to understand the, love, the lessons of what we call the more nuanced person, the, one, the person who looks more typical but is struggling with the subtleties of the social relationships versus kids who are more literal and need to understand how do I understand someone has a motive and how do I understand that they're reading me. And Michelle, can, if I can jump in here, as you were talking, I was thinking about one of your books about how to be a social detective. Is that the name of it? Can you give yeah. us the right name of that book, How to yeah, Be a Social yeah. Detective? We, yeah, <clears throat> or it's called that, you, you Are a Social Detective. You Are okay, a Social okay. Detective. I think, and if I'm hearing you, and I know, I mean, with your work, you've always stood out with this, that sometimes it's about asking the right questions, that that is something teachers and parents, something really simple. Once they grasp this understanding of what it is that the true problem is and the difficulty, then they become a better social detective. But as we can as far as what we can teach them, whether it's parents, teachers, and you've just helped point out, employers maybe who, who need an understanding. They've got somebody really smart technically, but yet um, I know um, I knew of a, a national HR per person, and she came to me with a huge frustration that this guy was one of the smartest technical people in the company, but he felt... Um, 
sort of um, rolled over because he wasn't getting any managerial opportunities. And he he was begging for that because he felt like that's how you advance, but she was lost in how to make him understand until you grasp the social part of things. You know, you, you may be the most excellent person technically, but we've got to make sure that you can, managing isn't just managing the technical, it's it's managing the other employees. So... Um, I I think we helped by giving her some of your resources about what kind of questions to ask him and to get him thinking about his own social thinking. So tell us how what what are some of those questions? What um, or you know resources? How can somebody learn about how to be a social detective? Okay, um, let me just back up and say we we do have. Um, we have the free information. We also have products out from four years old, three and a half years old, all the way through adulthood. So for folks in the business community, HR is just not particular. There is no real curriculum for folks in HR in terms of helping them understand folks with social learning challenges. So we wrote a book called um, Social Thinking in the Work World, Why Should I Care? And I kind of wish we had titled it a little bit differently because people read the book, it's focused on the work world, and then they say, well, this doesn't apply to my personal life, it's only work. And it's like, oh, wait, it's just we did it in the work setting, but all the same mm-hmm. concepts apply. When we go back to our little kids, our, um, you are a social detective is for elementary school, and now we have a curriculum out for our higher level kids called uh, the little kids, including the mainstream kids called uh, the Incredible Flexible You. So when you're when you're bringing up like what's the question, I I would back it up a little bit and say um, it's not necessarily just tacked to a question. It's how do we get you to understand what's going around on around you socially? Most work in social interaction is focused on when you're talking to this one person. Here's what you need to say and do with this one person. But the reality is by the time we put a kid in preschool and certainly by the time they're in kindergarten, we've put them in group learning and they have to be aware of not only the one person they might be thinking they're talking to, like the teacher, but they have to be aware that there's 20 to 30 other kids sitting around them and they've got to be aware of the entire group. So in the more and more we're becoming convinced that at the heart, at the first place to teach all all of our folks, whether they're kids or adults, is we've got to teach them to be better social observers of the situation and the people in the situation. So that's what the detective book is about, is how do we get you to understand that what you're supposed to be observing is not just a technical piece of information, but who are the people, where are they, what's the situation, and what are the expectations in that situation? So every situation has different hidden rules. So we, in a classroom, we can't tell the teacher, um, here's your one set of rules for the class or here's the one set of rules for the school because if you get inside of a classroom, you'll realize that children's social behavior is supposed to adapt to if the teacher's simply talking to the class and you're still supposed to be quiet, you're supposed to figure that out. If the teacher's now encouraging a discussion, now you need to know how to jump into the discussion, but when is it that you're talking too much or when is it that you've gone off on a tangent? Uh, when do you have to decide, hey, I have something important to say, but I've talked enough, so I just better not talk at all right now. I need to give other people a turn. And that's different from quiet work time and group work time and standing in line time. So we get kids to really zoom in on constantly trying to see what is the situation, who are the people, 
what's expected, how am I supposed to respond, how does this affect people's feelings. And so we have this little kind of formula we teach. What you do affects how people think, affects how they treat you, affects how you feel about yourself, and that goes back and forth. And, and we have materials for middle school and high school. We've got a book out there that we have no diagnosis, not, we have no diagnostic labels on at all called Socially Curious, Curiously Social for people use it in upper middle school, but at high school, young adults to just learn about the nuances, you know, getting into motive and interpreting and how do you observe better. May I ask you too, Michelle, in terms of um, IEPs and teachers in the classroom and special educators, do you think that um, there's enough awareness of the importance of social thinking, or do you think this is something that really, really needs um, to be given far more attention? Well, I think um, what's interesting is I've, I now give um, two grand rounds in training for psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, teachers, behaviorists, administrators, just everybody. And I've, because I was training such a wide group of professionals now, and I'm trained as a speech pathologist, I was interested in the training of all these other professionals. What do they learn about the social learning process? And what mm -hmm. I found was they really don't have curriculum that teaches them about social learning as a process that affects classroom participation as well as academic information. So I think social is an expectation, and then we think we teach academics. And so what a lot of my work is about, and I give you know workshops all over the country and actually around the world where I teach folks about uh, we need to check our own assumptions because we expect social behavior so that we can teach, but the reality is we don't really know how to teach social learning so that we have behaviors we can expect from kids. That it's always assumed that the kids should just show up and behave. And I've got kids who think they are behaving by raising their hand and constantly talking because they think that's what a classroom is because they're not really being able to socially observe what's happening with everybody else and what's expected if you're one of 30 kids in a class. So what I found through my work is that people, and, and everybody agrees with this, they, were never, they never learned this in bachelor's program, master's program, doc programs, that it's not uh, we don't have easy ways to embed it. Uh, there are things like positive behavior support programs, and social thinking can fit mm -hmm. inside of that. We have response to intervention, where social thinking can fit into different levels of teaching mm -hmm. based on where these kids are in class. You know, the Common Core, I've done writing on this. I have stuff posted on my blogs. If you click on Michelle's blog on my website, you'll get a ton of different ideas and strategies because these are all the things that we're enmeshed in and just behind the scenes working on. We've got books. I just came out with a new book called Why Teach Social Thinking, where I get into explaining a whole lot of this stuff. And then um, I, one last question is that, mm -hmm. that I have is in terms of giftedness and, and academically gifted students, do you see a lot of um, people who are also recognizing their needs in the social thinking arena, or um, is that something that it's just kind of um, not realized or recognized when they are putting uh, learning plans together for these students? 
Well, the term for it's twice exceptional, right? So exceptionally yeah. gifted and then exceptional in the sense that they have learning disabilities. I think that that's really confusing to folks. Um, I think we have a term, and I think even we may qualify kids at times, but often I'm told, you know, I see this all over the country, that they go, he's too bright to be able to qualify for an, ac for an IEP. He has no academic problems. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting because you just told me he can't write a paper and that his parents are having to do all the organization and that he's not interpreting and he has big meltdowns when he's asked to be able to summarize what a book is about. But that speaks to that issue I mentioned at the beginning of this, that the test scores can show they're fine, but they're actually not fine. For example, in written expression, we test you mm -hmm. using a multiple choice multiple test, choice. but right. then we assume you can go write a paragraph. And there is a sea of difference between being able to answer a question about punctuation knowledge and being able to use punctuation when you're actually in the midst of having to organize your thinking and writing. So that's that twice exceptional piece. And I think, I truly think it's just very confusing. I think it's very confusing to parents even, even when parents have gotten the diagnosis, I think it's still confusing. And I base that on the fact that the majority of people who talk to me about their bright child will come up and say, my child has some social problems, but he's really bright. And so by saying, but he's really bright, people are, are very often thinking the brightness will be this major assist to the social issues. And what I find is that really bright folks, often if you're really gifted, you actually, and I don't mean any offense by this, but really gifted kids did not have to learn how to learn. Their brain just absorbs knowledge. And then once they're good at absorbing knowledge, we can take them to the next level. But if your brain did absorbed a lot of science knowledge, but it never absorbed social knowledge, you've never really learned strategies for how do I even begin to focus on something my brain doesn't make sense of. And so often my gifted kids are the most reluctant participants because they feel really out of their skins by struggling through trying to even learn something that doesn't begin to make sense to them versus if I have a normal IQ kid who's always had to slug away a little bit at trying to figure out some new concepts, there when we bring them the social stuff, it's like one more thing they might have to slug away at. Um, so that's that's one of the challenges we see too in the twice exceptional is that they don't have a framework for working on something that just is not inherently logic um, obvious to them. Excellent, Michelle. Your description of that um, we is is something that we share with you that um, that's the frustration is just getting folks to understand that um, the brightness is is not necessarily going to automatically make up for anything actually it it becomes an obstacle. Yeah, let me just jump in and say, because I didn't say this, social thinking was specifically designed for kids with solid language and learning. And once we, you know, one of the ways through that obstacle is to help them understand their strengths compared to their weaknesses, but then to use language as a bridge. So because they have some sharp processing skills, not necessarily always, but they have some sharp learning abilities, we can start to use those to try to teach the social by breaking the social down into very logical 
uh, we start by showing that it's linear, and then we start to expand it and say, okay, we started in this very linear place, but let me show you this formula gets a little complicated, just like advanced science does. So if I'm going to work with a science mind, I'm going to use language, and I'm going to use I'm going to try to tap into their strengths of their cognition to show them how the social world has some parallels in the science world um, to try to help connect those two levels of cognition. Right. Sort well, of getting just... on, on their level. Go ahead. Okay. No, I was just saying this has been fascinating because you've, yeah, taken what they do well right. in order to support what they don't do so well. And then, right. Yes. We always have to start from someone's strengths. So right. this, this is, you know, we want to listen. We want to be aware of where's your strengths, where's, where do you think, where do we see you can really learn the best from, and then figure out how to bring their weakness through their strengths rather than just say, okay, forget the fact that you have all this knowledge over here. Let's just focus on the fact that you really are not very good socially. And then that just throws them into water that they're going to drown, and then they start to get very anxious. So, you know, we've certainly learned a lot and next year will be my 20th year having started creating social wow. thinking and it will I don't think it will ever be done it's just a process that uh, social thinking and the strategies we're creating are just continue to evolve I continue to work in my clinic I had clients in here yesterday because I'm constantly a learner and the more I can learn you know luckily now I have uh, it's really nice for me. I have a community of people interested in what we're doing, so as I learn, I just keep sharing new strategies. Um, we have a newsletter that comes out and, uh, through social thinking, and every month when we have a newsletter, I come out with a free article um, or something that I've written, a new idea. And the one coming out next week is uh, called Information Informer and Social Relator that a lot of my kids are constantly trying to tell people information, but they other people want them to be in the role of being a social relator, and they're not so keen to constantly be told new information. They just want someone to relate to. And so I kind of explain how we need to think through what roles we're being perceived in as to how good a fit we are in that situation. Excellent. Well, we will make sure that we let our listeners know about that as well as your other resources. And give us the website again, Michelle. It's just socialthinking.com. Awesome. We um, are so grateful that you were our guest today. So much helpful information in um, yeah. just a really vital piece of our whole child series. And uh, we'll continue to talk about all of your wonderful resources and encourage folks, if they can, to um, find you at one of your social thinking conferences you do throughout the U.S. You're even even more lively and wonderful in person, as we well know. And um, we look forward to speaking with you at the upcoming SING conference this year, the yeah. Social Emotional Needs of the Gifted. We're very excited about that. So um, on behalf of the Coffee Clatch and the Bright Not Broken show, we um, thank you so much for your time, and um, we hope to be in touch. Well, you, thank you, and thank you for inviting me. I really enjoy having these conversations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Everyone have a good evening. Bye-bye.